you are here in our midst, that you have said, where two or three gathered your name, there you are in the midst. And thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts to, um, so that we can know you and that we can know you're with us, that you are the one who gives peace and you're the only one who can heal us. You're the only living hope that we have. Without you, Lord, we have nothing and we are nothing. But thank you through you. We can do all things through you who strengthens us. We can pray when it's painful. We can trust when it seems dark and hopeless. And we can look to you as our God, our hero, our savior, our king, because you are all those things and more. You're infinitely greater than we can conceive of or, or imagine. And your ways are higher than ours. We acknowledge, Lord, that you are praiseworthy and trustworthy. And we cry out to you, Lord, because we are desperate for healing. We are desperate for hope. We are desperate for comfort and for peace in a time of turmoil and conflict. Lord, I pray that you would calm our hearts now. You would give us ears to hear what you're saying to the church, that we could receive your word and walk in the light of it, that we could be encouragers and be edified in the body. We praise you and bless your holy name, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 41, if you want to turn there. Isn't it ironic that we believe that God's all-knowing, He's wise and good, and that we're not. We're not all those things. And yet we often feel we know the right course of action for him to take in a given situation. Um, God invites us to come boldly to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. And we think we know the best way to get the help. Like we, need, we know the help that we want, and we hope that he, he acts in a certain way. And if our expectations are dashed, if God hasn't done what we supposed he should have or could have, um, it's not because God's lied or he's failed to keep his promises. Our, our frustrations are not his fault. There's something in all of us that assumes we know best and that we know how to approach something. And, and the time of the ju judges, it was marked by people who did what was right in their own eyes. They believed they knew best, they weren't seeking the Lord, and they just did the best they could. And that's where we can find ourselves, even as believers. Because that, that's a human tendency, like having two eyes and um, one mouth, that we do what seems best to us. It's a natural way. But when we entrust ourselves, our, our situation, and our future into the hands of the Almighty God in faith, that's where we can find a place of peace and rest and contentment, satisfaction, even when the circumstances are rough and brutal, when there is upheaval. After returning to Nazareth, where Jesus was raised, it says in Luke 2:40, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. I always find it amazing the development of a child, how they go from, you know, babbling to speaking sentences and words and making sense and being able to do things. And uh, like every day there's new, during those times of rapid development that they surprise you and they amaze you with their insights, the, the way they see things and their personality starts to emerge. And that's a very exciting time. And I can only imagine when that person, that's, that personality that's emerging is God. When it's Jesus, who is all-knowing and without sin, 
um, where you have a child who's filled with wisdom. It says there, the child grew, became strong in spirit. Not self-willed, but strong to do God's will, to seek God. And only wisdom was in that heart. Solomon wrote in Proverbs twenty-two fifteen: foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. But there was no folly in the heart of Jesus, only wisdom. And truth that began to show itself more and more as he began to speak and interact with them. And as he physically developed, God's wisdom became more and more evident through him. And now we're going to read today the only recorded incident from Jesus' youth. One thing, this is the one time that we get to have a little insight into how he was growing up when he was 12 years old. In Luke 2, verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. The law required that all males were to present themselves before the Lord um, three times a year at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. We read that in Deuteronomy 16.16. And it was a long journey from Nazareth. There's about 110 Ks. And uh, they weren't wealthy a wealthy family, but every year Joseph and Mary made this trip together to go to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. Our text says that Jesus, when he was 12 years old, he accompanied them. Now, it doesn't say this was the first time that he ever accompanied them. Uh, it just says that this was a notable time. This is something, something very unique happened on this particular trip. And 12 was a significant age because in that culture, you would begin at that age to be required to appear before the Lord, and you would begin to learn your father's trade. And Joseph was a carpenter. So this was a, a transitioning phase of from a child to an adult and having responsibility uh, to learn the family business. Um, and so you have the Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Those are two different things, but they're rolled together quite often. So when they say they celebrated Passover, it includes the Passover meal and then the seven days following. So it was over eight days, this Passover feast, which is including the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 43, when they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, seeking him. When the feast was over, Joseph and Mary, they gear up with the rest of the clan and they head back to Nazareth and Galilee. And we know that their um, land was given to them by lot. And so it was likely they lived, were neighbors with their own family. And it made sense that they would all travel together for safety. And, and a feast time, it was a holiday. And it was also a social occasion because you were forbidden from work in seeking the Lord. You would have these, these feasts together and you would be rehearsing the awesomeness of God and the things that he's done and, and he's done for your people. And so it was a real unifying experience to travel down to Jerusalem together, to experience that time. It was a spiritual and a social experience. And then to head back, um, what, what a blessing to, to celebrate the redemption of the firstborn that they had been delivered from bondage because they realized we couldn't always do this. There was a time when we were slaves in Egypt, and, but, but God brought us out. 
and God's established us, and he dwells among us. Now, this is the first incident in a list far too numerous to detail when Jesus did not do what others supposed he would do. We're going to see this a lot through the book of Luke. Luke says Joseph and his mother supposed Jesus was among the company. They trusted Jesus to do the right thing by 12. They knew he had a a really mature and devout heart. There was wisdom in him. And and they supposed he was with family and friends. And he was doing the right thing. But he wasn't where they expected him to be. They expected him to be with their traveling group. But he wasn't there. Scripture is full of examples of people who made false assumptions like this, who supposed something that wasn't true. Stephen, he addressed the Sanhedrin. He told them about Moses. He said, I'll tell you why Moses killed the Egyptian that was beating the Hebrew slave in Acts 7.25. For he, Moses, supposed that his brother, brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. So Moses sees a Hebrew slave being beaten. He knows that God's called him to deliver the children of Israel. He's 40 years old. And he says, now is a perfect time for me to show that I am the one that God is going to deliver the nation through. He supposed they would have understood that when I, I, so he killed that Egyptian to show his resolve to help God's people. But he was daubed in by that same person. They rejected him. Hannah, she's a devout woman. She's praying silently at the tabernacle. Her mouth is moving, but she's making no sounds. And Eli, the high priest, he looks at her and says, what is this drunk doing here? And he's like, hey, put your wine away from you. How long are you going to be a drunk? I mean, he said that to her. And he was dead wrong. God had, she had favor in the sight of God. He gave her her request. She gave birth to Samuel the prophet and five children besides. Naaman the Syrian. He goes to Israel to be healed of his leprosy. And he was furious when Elisha didn't come to the door to greet him. And it says this, uh, like he had the assurance of healing. He said, go to the Jordan and dip seven times and you'll be cleansed. 2 Kings 5.11, but Naaman became furious and went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. But because he didn't meet his expectation, because he didn't do what he supposed, he would have gone back to Syria and remained a leper and he wouldn't have trusted in God at all. But there were some wise servants who said, hey, if he asked you something tough, wouldn't you have done it? Why not just do this thing, even though it's not what you expected? I mean, you wanted to hear the, the incantation and have this ritual done, but just do what he says. A day came in the life of Jesus where he's miraculously walking on a stormy sea. His disciples wished that Jesus was with them, but when they saw something walking towards them, it says in Mark six forty nine and 50, and when they saw him, Jesus, walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled, but immediately he talked with them and said to them, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. They supposed Jesus was a ghost, and it was God coming to them, walking to help them. As a prisoner, Paul, He warned the centurion and the jailer. He says, now is not the time to sail. We're going to lose the ship and everything on it, and maybe even our lives. But they didn't listen to Paul. 
It says in Acts 27, 13, when the wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurycliden. So they, they say, now is maybe not the time to sail, but that gentle wind, it seems so inviting. We, have, we assume this is the right time, and it turned into a cyclone that they miraculously... Only by the grace of God, they survived. Everything was lost. So what can we learn from these examples? Well, if you're taking notes, supposing it leads to impatience in taking matters into your own hands. That's what Moses did. Instead of waiting for God's way and God's timing, Moses killed a man to make a point. Supposing leads to false accusations. Eli, he accused a devout woman of being drunk. She was seeking the Lord. She was a much better standing with God at that time than Eli was because of his kids that he was not dealing with. Supposing it leads to anger and unbelief. We see that with Naaman, don't we? He was angry because his expectation wasn't met and he, he did not believe. It was only those servants that helped him submit to the command and be healed and trust God. Supposing it leads to fear and not recognizing Jesus, that he's walking towards us, that he's coming to help us, and we don't see the help coming because we're afraid and we're only focused on the circumstances. And supposing it leads to walking by sight rather than trusting in God, that gentle wind, it turned into a cyclone. They thought it was a good, good time to sail, but God said differently. Joseph and Mary, they supposed Jesus was in the company, but he wasn't. For an entire day, they traveled, thinking Jesus was hanging out with his cousins or talking with the elders of their village, but he wasn't. So the question is, how much supposing do you do? You suppose God should do something or act in a certain way. and If, if your life is marked with impatience and fear and accusations and anger, it may be that we have made assumptions or have expectations of God that he's not meeting the way or in the timing that we think he should. And that, that should move us to repent. Because when we suppose, when we make assumptions based upon our limited understanding, we embrace false hope. We put our hope in something changing and God doing what we think is best rather than surrendering to his will. And trusting him, that he has things in hand. I mean, we think that this situation, oh, it's so perfect. It's the perfect time for this person to change. <clears throat> it's the perfect time to satisfy my desires or to, to bring healing or revival. We have all these things that we think is ideal right now. But God's ways are higher than ours. And instead of looking to Jesus and trusting his plan, we're shattered when he doesn't do what we think he should. He's not where we expected him. But what Joseph and Mary did was good. As soon as they realized he wasn't where they thought he was, they turned around and they went looking for him. They would not stop until they found him. And may there be in us such a heart that when we realize our, what we supposed is not reality, we need to look to God for directives, for his presence. 
<clears throat> Luke 2, 4, 45, it says, So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. And I imagine, having made this trip many times, that they had a regular route. They had places where they encamped and stayed, and they inquired at places along the way. I imagine they felt very alone. And we can blame Joseph and Mary for losing Jesus in a crowd of hundreds of thousands of people, but we can lose sight of him too. And we don't just know him as a 12-year-old boy. We know him as the one who has redeemed us, our risen Lord and Savior who knows all, who is God Almighty, the one who has saved us from death. So put yourself in the shoes of Joseph and Mary. They traveled one day away from Jerusalem, find out that Jesus is not with them. It's going to take a full day to get back to Jerusalem and then how to find him. If I was uh, Joseph at this time, I'd be thinking like where he is, what he must be feeling like, and what might have happened to him? And I think that last bit is the one where I would be stuck. Like, what if? What if someone kidnapped him? What if he's lost? Where is he sleeping? How is he eating? I mean, I would be praying, and I would imagine that he's just as worried and anxious and concerned as I am about him. But see, that wasn't the case with Jesus because there was no anxious worry because he knew he knew, where his parents, he knew where Joseph and Mary were, and he knew that they were coming to him, but he wasn't looking to them. He was looking to his Father in heaven. He wasn't hiding. Jesus wasn't playing a prank on them. He would be found by them. Verse 46, so, Now so it was, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. After three days, they finally find Jesus in the temple. And had it been anyone else other than Jesus, I would not have expected him to be there. And it's pretty clear by the context, they did not expect him to be there. And doing what he's doing, it's not like he's just hanging around the temple begging for scraps. He's sitting amongst the Pharisees, the lawyers, and the doctors of the law in a teaching posture. He's sitting in the midst. They're peppering him with questions. He is listening, it says, and asking questions. In ancient times, people, they stood to show respect for a teacher or an elder when they walked in. And when that, that teacher began to speak, it wasn't until they were given permission that they would sit. And so Jesus is sitting. He's in a, he's in a position of authority at 12 years old amongst these doctors and lawyers. And what Jesus does is a good example for us. It says both listening to them and asking them questions. Do you suppose Jesus had a lot of truth to say, a lot of wisdom to lay on them? But he listened first. He listened. Then he asked questions. He didn't just answer their questions, but he showed mastery by asking them questions. And that's a pattern we'll see Jesus follow often in interacting with people. He answers a question with a question. He knows the heart of the one asking. He knows what corner, if they're trying to trap him, if they're asking a genuine question or they're trying to, to um, force him into a particular corner, he knows that already and he's able to turn the tables on them to get to the heart of the matter. 
I mean, they're talking with God who created mankind, who wrote, who, who inspired the scriptures, who created language, and he's the author of all wisdom. Like, and he's 12 years old. It, it was just blowing their minds. They were astonished at his understanding and his answers. Now, we can't know the hearts of men, but we can listen before we speak. We can listen before we ask. And that's a way to show love, by being a patient listener. Listening to people is a way to show that we love them and care about them more than just being right or setting them straight. Verse 47 says they were astonished at his understanding and answers. He had had no formal study of the Torah to their knowledge. These men had devoted their entire lives to the study of Scripture, uh, to study them, to teach others, and to keep the law. I was reading up on uh, a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah and how they encourage people who are going to be, it's like confirmation for a Jewish Orthodox Jew, that uh, it's good to focus on, they just said, here's something to do. Focus on one law. Do research into one law and do the best you can to keep that one law. And if you do this, you're doing good. There's 613 of those, and Jesus had mastery of all of them. So they're like, whoa, <laughs> how does he know this? And he's not just, I mean, he's quoting from the prophets and the Psalms and the law. Like he has, and he's, he's giving us insights of things we never even thought of and ways to interpret things that are so solid that we're like, wow, could it be possible? They didn't know what to think for days. It would have been one thing if he gave one answer. But for days, he's there confounding them just with his understanding and his answers. He had an answer. Verse 48. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? but they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Joseph and Mary saw Jesus. They were struck with amazement. The text doesn't say why they were amazed, um, but undoubtedly it was a relief to find him based on what Mary said because she said, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. To be anxious is to be in painful suspense because of worry. Like the suspense of it, it is hurting you. And you are worried and it's just begetting more uncomfortable thoughts. Mary felt how we do when we're anxious. We wonder why. We have regrets and we take things personally. When we're anxious, that's our tendency. Had Jesus done anything wrong to Joseph and Mary? No, but she says, why have you done this to us? We know he didn't disobey them. He had no malice against them. Perhaps Mary was taken aback by his seeming lack of concern for how long they had been looking for him, and maybe she supposed that he would have been looking for them. Right? She's like, he's here talking about the law and the matters of, of Scripture with these people. He's not even looking for us. I expected him to be like at the inn that we stayed at. But no, he's here. Like, why have you done this? Was Jesus to blame for Mary's anxious feelings? No. 
Feeling anxious and worry, it's natural for all of us, but the life and teaching of Jesus, it gives no place or provision for it. Turn to what Paul wrote from prison in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not worry, do not worry. Worrying comes from unbelief. Unbelief is a sin. This is what Paul wrote, and he's in prison, so it's not like he's living the high life and things are so comfortable for him that he's saying this like, all right, because of my, you know, I'm living like King Solomon, so everything's good. No, he's writing this from prison so we can know that, well, none of, no one in this room is physically in prison. So uh, he's got that on all of us. Philippians 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We can rejoice even in trials and difficulty, not that we rejoice in the trial, we rejoice in the Lord always. It's in Him we rejoice, because our eyes are focused on Him. He is the good in every situation because He's with us, even when it seems He's far away. He's with us, He's in us, and instead of worrying, we should be praying, seeking him. And it seems rude, right, to someone who's feeling anxious, like, stop being anxious. Don't be anxious. Like you're, you're minimizing how they're feeling and the way that, that uh, they're struggling at the moment. But Paul reminds us why we should not be anxious. Because we're in the Lord. He's at hand. That means he's present with us. He's right here, able to help us. And if we trust him, we have nothing to worry about because he's God. He loves us. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Just because we're overwhelmed, it doesn't mean he's overwhelmed. Just because we're anxious doesn't mean he doesn't know what to do. He, he certainly knows what he's doing. But I have to ask myself when I'm anxious, is Jesus a savior or not? Is, he, is his word trustworthy or not? And if I say, well, he is a savior and his word is trustworthy, I can rejoice in him in any time, even when it hurts. And sometimes when it hurts, that is a sacrifice of praise that is most pleasing in the sight of God because it costs us something. David said, I'm not going to give to God what costs us nothing, what costs me nothing. And sometimes when we are in, in the throes of being anxious and worried, if we say, Lord, I am going to cast those cares upon you because you care for me, that's an act of faith that God rewards with his presence and peace. When we realize we're anxious, we ought to repent of our sin and, and not try to justify ourselves or blame him for us. Like, why are you doing this to me, God? Jesus doesn't say, well, you're doing that to yourself. He doesn't say that. He just starts asking questions. And, and he does so in a really gentle, kind way. Because Jesus is, Mary is insinuating that Jesus is in the wrong place because he's not with them. She expected him to be in the company. He's not in the company. And so, hey, he's doing something to her she's not pleased with. 
And he asks questions of his own. He says, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Wouldn't it be strange for a 12-year-old separated from his parents for days? I mean, I have no idea where Jesus spent the night. He spent the night somewhere. But he, to ask his, his uh, mother and Joseph, why did you seek me? It's a strange question, right? Because he's like, well, you're a 12-year-old. You were supposed to be with a group, and you're not. We, we, we expect it. I mean, we we're days away, and you're all alone. Jesus wasn't lost. There's no need to look for something if you know where it is. Right? The only time I need to look for my keys is when my keys are not in the basket where they're supposed to be. Somehow, I mean, we all have those places, right? You have something where something belongs. That pot belongs there. That file, it's under this. And this ring, I put it in this box. I mean, it's only when you, when you go to that place and it's not there that you have to look for it. And you go, where did I put it? And you start retracing your steps. It's like I just go around in this endless loop until, so, God willing, I find the thing. But it's like, why did you seek me? Because I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Did you see what Mary said? She said, your father and I have sought you anxiously. Jesus is clarifying something here. He's saying, Joseph isn't my father. I have a heavenly father and I'm about his business. He's saying, I'm going to obey my, my heavenly father without apology. Don't you know that I'm going to be doing my father's will? If they understood fully who Jesus was and who his father was, they would have known where he was and why. He says, do you, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And the text says they did not understand what he said to them. I expect this kind of thing happened all the time with Jesus. We see it with his disciples and, you know, sometimes with us too. Where he says something, we're like, what does that mean? What's he getting at? I don't really understand this at all. And it's good for us to just be arrested when we don't understand when Jesus says something and, and just say, God, what do you mean? I don't understand this. Please teach me. The business that Joseph had been doing was long over, right? The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's done. So Joseph didn't have any business in the temple anymore. That was over. That's why they left. But Jesus affirmed that God was his father, and it was time for Jesus to begin in the business concerning the kingdom of God. Jesus would return to Nazareth. He would take up carpentry, a trade under Joseph's care. But his work was greater than carpentry, than doing the family business in Nazareth. Um, but he had an everlasting scope of ministry uh, based upon who his heavenly father was. He knew that God in heaven is my father. I'm the son of God sent with a divine purpose to accomplish, to seek and save the lost, to preach, preach repentance in the kingdom of God, and I will be revealed to Israel in God's time. Those are things he had settled. I like what Matthew Henry wrote about Jesus. He said he had business to do there and will let his parents know that he had a father in heaven whom he was to be observant of more than of them. And respect to him must not be construed disrespect to them. 
So just because he was respecting his heavenly father, it did not mean he was disrespecting his parents. But as we'll see, he was subject to them. Now, as a parent, this is something we need, to, we need to embrace gladly. You desire your child to be born again through faith in Christ. That's good. And this should be accompanied by a humble shift of ceasing to have, our kid, have your children please you to living to please God above you. Because if they're pleasing him, isn't that pleasing to us? I mean, sometimes there may be things that we don't expect. Our, our children are under our care for a short season. If we only teach our kids to please me, to obey me, to have good manners, to do household chores, to, to live up to my expectations, what good does it do when they part us? We're not there anymore. We won't always be there. But if that child is, is trained... And we begin to take steps to say, Lord, I release them to your care. I'm going to train them. I'm going to teach them. But I want to teach them to honor and obey God always, more than me. So it's not just to please dad or mom, but to please God. That's why they make the decisions. And then you're, you're, you can be separated from your child and realize, hey, their, their relationship with God is what's going to, he's going to keep them on track. It's not me just checking up on them. We can entrust our kids into the hands of God who created them. He loves them. And his plans for their lives are greater than our dreams for their security and success. If we and our children are engaged together in the business of our Father in heaven, we will always be doing what's right. And that's the key. Verse 51. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Jesus did not stop being about his father's business when he departed Jerusalem. But in obedience to his father, he, sur he submitted himself to his earthly parents. As was supposed, Joseph, his stepdad, and Mary, his mother. And he trained under Joseph, who was a carpenter. The Greek word is tekton, which means builder. It's a general term. Uh, and we have the idea of, of being a carpenter like a chippy, working with wood. Because of where Jesus was from in Nazareth, the, the, lack, the scarcity of hardwood for building, and most building at that time was done with stone. So it's likely that, and there was a quarry, a very large quarry quite near to Nazareth. So it's likely that he was involved with a lot of stone cutting and stone work as well as some wood. Matthew Henry, again, he said, he did not urge his parents either to come and settle at Jerusalem, but very willingly retired into his obscurity at Nazareth, where for many years he was, as it were, buried alive. I was like, wow. Who, who among us wants to be buried alive? You have a calling upon your life. The Lord has anointed you and gifted you and called you to do something. And Jesus knew that when he was 12 years old. But he submitted himself to his parents. He was subject to Joseph and Mary, and he took up a trade. For 18 years, he toiled in relative obscurity after this kind of, when he was 12 years old, shining that bright light in the dark place that was Judaism at the time. Seemingly not doing anything, 
to advance the purpose for which he sent. From the outside, from a human vantage point, we could make that assumption, but it would be short-sighted and ignorant because the timing of Jesus' revelation to the world with the, the preaching of John the Baptist and then Jesus coming, it was all orchestrated by God according to his wisdom and his grace and his mercy. We can be in a hurry, but God is never in a hurry. Just like Jesus, he wasn't anxious in the temple. He's saying, about time you showed up. That wasn't his attitude. He knew. See, he knows things that we just guess at. And perhaps you find yourself like Jesus was in Nazareth. He had that 18 years of obscurity. Or where David was. David had been anointed king of Israel, but there was a king already on the throne. And, and that was a king, King Saul, who was trying to kill him for over 10 years. He lived, on his, he lived his life on the run. He's living in caves and fields, wherever he could find a place, even in enemy territory. It seemed safer than living in his hometown. And he took his parents, and I think he took them over to Moab so that they could be safe. So upheaval, turmoil. He's the anointed, but he's on the run. And this is what he wrote in Psalm 31, 12. It says, I am forgotten like a dead man, out of mind. I am like a broken vessel, for I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side. While they take counsel together against me, they scheme to take away my life. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. When I read that, I'm thinking, man, Jesus could have felt very much that way. You know, like on a human side, like I'm not fulfilling my purpose. Everyone here, they're questioning my, even if I'm a legitimate child. And, and way past marrying age, he's 30 years old when he departed from Nazareth to go into ministry. Persecuted. And he's, he's there in Nazareth knowing what's facing him, that he will face the heartache of rejection by the very people God had sent him to save. That the people he would call would turn against him and they would hate him. They would refuse him. David, he trusted God. He acknowledged, my times are in your hands. You're going to deliver and save me. You know, our times, they're in God's hands too. He will deliver us. He will save us. And more important than Jesus' development as a builder, it says he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. I ask you, was Jesus held back from increasing in wisdom or maturity because he lived in Nazareth and not Jerusalem? No. Because he was having fellowship with the Father. Was he held back from increasing in wisdom because he was working with his hands instead of sharpening himself with the elite in Jerusalem? No. Maybe men forgot about him, but God didn't. God has not forgotten about you. And he knows what you're experiencing. He knows how you're feeling. And he knows the cares that you carry and the things that you suppose God should do and when he should do them. But I urge you to trust him, to look to him, to turn to him. With the events of, of the past weeks, the, the bushfires and 
panic and grief over lives and property and planes being shot out of the sky and mangled remains of people. It's just, it's unthinkable, right? It's beyond our ability to really receive. I'm really led to that moment in this passage where there's this frantic search for Jesus when Joseph and Mary lost sight of him. And it's so easy to lose sight of Jesus when we're in pain and when there's upheaval and uncertainty and we are anxious. When, when Jesus was found, the King James, it puts Mary's statement to Jesus like this. She says, Son, why hast thou dealt thus with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. So in the New King James, it puts it anxiously, but the King James says sorrowing. So it has that grief element that's brought out of the passage. It wasn't the fault of Jesus that Joseph and Mary were anxious and sorrowing. Instead of only asking why, let's be those who, like Joseph and Mary, are sorrowing and our anxious feelings. They lead us to pursue Jesus. They lead us to follow after him and to cry out to him. Having found Jesus, Mary, she's looking for some sympathy or an explanation, right? She's thinking, if he explains this to me, if he answers my why question, I can feel better. But what does this text say? It says she didn't understand the answer. She says, why have you done this? And then he, he asks her a couple questions and says, but they did not understand. When you ask those why questions of God, the answer, you may not understand. They didn't. So your, your comfort is not going to be in the answer, in knowing why. Your comfort is in Jesus and the Holy Spirit, whom he sent the comforter who helps us, who guides us into all truth. Our tendency when we feel sorrow, when we feel anxious, is to, to seek relief or to change the circumstances. But God wants us in those circumstances or uses those circumstances to teach us to seek him, to pursue and to trust him, to know him. He allows the, the sorrowing and the difficulty so we could know God because we wouldn't otherwise. We wouldn't even look to him. So by his grace, he, he leads us gently. He allows the bad feelings. He allows the suffering. But he also brings the consolation and the comfort and the peace that we need, the healing, the restoration, the redemption. We suppose we know what God should do, but God wants us to know him and to trust him. Jesus is no longer a 12-year-old boy sitting in the temple talking about matters of the law. But he's the good shepherd who's called us to come to him. The one who laid down his life so we could un enjoy unbroken fellowship with him as we grow in grace. As a child of God. Having been born again, I, I encourage, I exhort you, let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's turn to Jesus in these times when there is so much to sorrow over. There's so much cause, right? Where we could say, well, I'm justified to feel sorrow and to despair, to remain here. But let's turn to Jesus. Let's obey our Heavenly Father, and by His grace, we can increase in wisdom, stature, and favor with God. Even if it feels like grief is burying you alive, you have life through Jesus. Let's thank Him.
Father, thank you for sending Jesus to be our Savior, and thank you that you don't do what we suppose you should do, and you do far better. Lord, you know the pains in our hearts. You know the grief. You know the sorrow and the torment, the things. You came to save us and deliver us from all those things. And I pray that we would not give space or justification to remain in unbelief or anger or frustration or, uh, or doubt any longer, but that we would turn to you, that we would uh, follow after you, that we would seek your face, that we would... Uh, grow in our relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, that you give us more than answers. You give us yourself. You give us more than just mental understanding of things, but you, you offer us your presence for eternity. And I pray, Lord, that we would uh, avail ourselves, that we would, we would listen to what you're saying. We would receive it. Lord, move upon us. Send your spirit to fill us afresh so that we can rejoice and praise your holy name. You are our deliverer and our savior. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.